Take a network break. Enjoy a baker's dozen of virtual donuts and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. We got a plethora of topics today, including on the new automation service from Juniper, big changes at Docker, and the .org domain is going to private equity. We'll dig into all that after a little business. This episode is sponsored in part by INE. They are the experts at making you an expert. They're announcing a new monthly all-access pass subscription plan. It provides you with unlimited access to INE's entire content library of over 14,000 of the best IT and network training videos for just 99 bucks a month. Visit INE.com slash packet pushers to get started. INE.com slash packet pushers. Today's show is also sponsored in part by ExtraHop, the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. They offer complete visibility with machine learning to help you make quick, confident decisions about your IT environment. You can explore the ExtraHop performance platform at ExtraHop.com slash packet pushers. And speaking of ExtraHop, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with ExtraHop on traffic decryption and why it's essential for security operations. We're also going to dig into how ExtraHop decrypts traffic, how it handles decryption keys, and more. We get a little nerdy. Ah, okay, let's get to some FU, Greg. Yeah, we had a lot this week. We did. I'm freshly back from uh, in the event in Silicon Valley Tech Field Day's 10-year anniversary. So, Yeah, happy anniversary little... to you and the Tech Field Day crew. Yeah, a big shout out to Tech Field Day, to Stephen Foskett and his team over there for uh, 10 years of sharing knowledge and expertise and convincing vendors to put that stuff out there. Some of our, uh, some of my personal research in this area certainly comes from the Tech Field Day videos. I watch an astonishing amount of them, really. I looked at YouTube the other day and went, oh, no, no, there you go. But uh, there's lots of good information in there. Um, uh, in the similar vein to what we're doing, but it's a video, so it requires your full attention, unlike podcasts. But as always, uh, highly recommend it, techfield.com, and then check out their YouTube channel or their Vimeo channel. Yep, highly recommend it. It's good stuff. Uh, so the first follow-up comes from a conversation we had about SD-WAN standards. Somebody wrote in, I think we had talked about Linux not being a standard, but somebody wrote in to offer sort of a correction. Yeah, obviously SD-WAN standards was poking some sort of a bear, which <laughs> seems to have woken up a number of people to hit up the FU. And if you want to send us some FU, head on over to packetpushes.net slash FU, and you can give us your follow-up at any time. There's a little form there. We don't capture any information. You don't have to give us your name or your email if you don't have to, although it helps. If you're making controversial statements, if you put your name in, it makes it easier for us to trust you as a viable source. Um, this one is about, um, I made a comment about Unix not and Linux, oh, sorry, three, two. I made a comment about Linux not being standardized. And a couple of people actually, but in this case it was Remy, uh, who actually wrote in and said that Unix was standardized around something called POSIX. Uh, and it was more important back in the 1990s and 2000, he says, when it was relevant. But today, the dominance of Linux is less important. I agree. You're quite right about POSIX. There was an attempt back in the day. This is when HPUX and IBM AIX and the other Unix variants of the era were so radically different mm. that customers couldn't run their apps on each one. And so people would, there was a, 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 a pushback from the customers saying they have to be the same. We have to have some level of portability. Mm -hmm. And eventually Linux came along and POSIX kind of died away. I think the flip side here is that um, a couple of things. One is, the divergence of the Unixes meant that that app applications couldn't run on each. That's not something that's happened in Linux. Broadly in Linux, the core of Linux is con is the same. Yeah, the kernel and, is is pretty locked down. Yeah, and the kernel is pretty locked down and convergent across all the things. And there's, you know, you can run your same app on Red Hat as you can on SuSE as you can on Debian um, or Ubuntu, for example. Right? You don't. Mm -hmm. You might have to change the packaging, but generally your app doesn't need a ground-up rewrite to run right. on either one. So I think the, the need for standards is less. And um, 
at the end of the day, if you want to standardize Linux, you've got a fairly gray area here because Linux is so so large. You can have thousands of applications. You know, do you choose Nginx or do you choose Apache or do you choose one of the other web servers? Well, that's not something that can really be standardized. How can you write a standard that says Linux is this? But if you take it down to the kernel and you say, well, this is where the standard is, that's still an enormous surface. Do you say this version of Vi, this version of Vim, this version of Emacs, this version of Pico? Are mm. they all, you know, do you standardize on one of those or do you standardize on all four? In which case standards kind of become redundant. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I guess the way Linux approached it is, uh, we'll have a very tight kernel. Uh, it'll still be open source, but we there's a body that gets to decide what goes into that kernel, and then everybody else builds on top of that. Uh, and so I guess it's sort of a de facto standard in that there's no sort of overall governing body determining the kernel. It's uh, essentially uh, Linus, but you know there yes. it, it seems to have worked. Yeah, so I, I would I would put it to you that the distributions have taken on the mantle of standardizing Linux. There's the Red Hat standard, there's a SUSE standard, there's the Ubuntu standard, and you know many many more. And if you wish to have a standard, you that is your standard. That's the standard that you choose, and mostly that's around the packaging of the applications, not so much the Linux itself per se. Yeah, I guess I like the way the community calls it flavors instead of standards because it yeah. makes it more about personal choice and preference as opposed to, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of locked into this. But, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say they're standards. They're just not in a way that you would normally agree with them. The standards bodies in this case is Red Hat and Ubuntu. And, you know, um, because of such a large surface in Linux, you, you can, and we'll talk more about this in the next section um, about how standards, you know, where what does standards identify and yep. what's the value of a standard? And I don't think it quite applies in Linux's case. And therefore, SD-WAN standards are similar. Let's talk about that in the next section, in the next FU. Yeah, so the next FU also uh, focused on SD-WAN interoperability. This is a conversation we had in our episode with Brad Casemore, which I think was last just last week, um, <laughs> talking about will uh, how many do we need standards? Will standards emerge in SD-WAN? Uh, this person wrote in to say he doesn't think so because a lot of uh, SD-WAN edge devices are essentially using OSPF or BGP underneath, so there's not really uh, an issue around making the tunnel standard because they can still communicate with each other. Uh, the issue may be more at the higher level, which is the point I raised about uh, wanting some kind of telemetry or feedback or analytics coming into sort of a uh, a single dashboard if you're using a variety of different SD-WAN platforms underneath. Yeah. So my belief is um, extending from the previous session that's probably going to look like a Linux distribution, and that is the first thing you have to do, I think, to see SD-WAN standards, and I'm going to try and I'm going to make some very broad predictions here that I'm not highly confident in, so they're not going to go down on the spreadsheet. You know? Okay, loosely coupled the, predictions. Loosely coupled ones, but I, I think the first thing you have to do is not look at SD-WAN standards at the device level. So if you're thinking about SD-WAN standards and saying, my SD-WAN device needs to interoperate with mm-hmm. any controller, I think that's wrong. I, I, th- I don't think that will ever happen. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason there is that hardware is now cheap, and powerful and simple, and in some cases, due to software licensing and zero-touch provisioning, replacing the appliance isn't all that difficult. So we're much more likely to see forklifting upgrades coming in the future. In the same way as somebody shifts from iOS to Android, not entirely seamless, not entirely painless, but certainly can be done by replacing your hardware, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yep. Right? So in that sort of model, that's a very loose metaphor, <laughs> grossly loose metaphor, um, but uh, you know, you you would obviously want to have the SD-WAN devices that match your controller. And this is why I always say the SD-WAN focus has always got to be on the controller functions with a lesser focus on the appliances at the edge. And 
Um, there are a number of SD-WAN solutions out there, and we'll talk more about those in a minute, which are really very much edge SD-WAN solutions as opposed to holistic or end-to-end SD-WAN solutions. And SD-WAN is a broad church, and that's so when you come back down to standards again, you have a problem. So I believe the natural interconnection point between SD-WAN networks is in the overlay and for most vendors this means in the cloud where the controller is is located so it'll be a controller to controller connection mm-hmm. um and uh, you know at some point that's not here today there's no interoperability between sd-wans but at some point there's going to be a customer big enough and ugly enough who's going to demand vendors give them an interconnection between existing sd-wan strategy that they've got and the one the vendor is hoping to sell and the customer is hoping to buy, right? Yeah, I could see a very large organization that, you know, the North American group brought, bought vendor X, uh, the mm. European group bought vendor Y, and the Asia Pac group bought vendor Z, and they mm. want some kind of Uber controller or Uber dashboard for all of these different things. And if they've got the pockets, they can make it happen. Yeah, or a customer will be integrating the acquisition of one network. Yeah. You know, they've gone and bought a you know, very big company, spending very large sum of money, buys another big company, <laughs> They've got two different networks and they decide to merge them together. They've got two different SD-WANs. They're going to go to the to the vendor and say, we need to integrate these and this is how you're going to do it. And my general assumption would be it'd be like a basic IPSEC tunnel setup with high availability between the SD-WAN controllers, probably the cloud controllers, and it'll probably even happen cloud to cloud, but you'd be configured like a multi-tenant IPSEC solution. Mm-hmm. And down that tunnel, there'll be some BGP announced to announce routes and availability. And there'll also be some hacks and works arounds for NAT overlapping and things like that. Just like you do today with IPSEC VPNs over a remote access solution when you bond connect to customers, it'll probably look something like that in the early stages and then go on to become something more advanced after that as time goes by. Okay, so there's a loosely coupled prediction for this, but I guess we won't put it on the spreadsheet, but it'll just float there off to the side. Well, there might be something in that that you can't see, but that to me is the natural way forward. And vendors always take the path of least resistance. Uh, ch- change the word resistance to cost, uh-huh. and you've got a. <laughs> you might have a key. Uh, least resistance also means customers will always buy the dumbest thing, like the easiest thing, mm-hmm. and usually the stupidest thing. And you know, if I come up to you and say, "Oh yeah, no, we'll just connect our two SDN controllers with an IPSEC tunnel," customers will buy that. If you tried to make something more clever or more amazing, it probably wouldn't work. And, of course, down that VPN connection, you would lose costs and tagging and visibility and all that sort of stuff. And that's perfect then because for the vendors, they don't have to talk to each other. They don't have to love each other. They hold each other at arm's length. There's, you know, They don't want the customers really getting it good, so they'll keep it sort of isolated. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, yeah, let's keep an eye on to see how this all shapes out. But we, we've got another follow-up. This is our last FU for this section. Uh Again, last week we had talked about uh, Pika 8 rolling out Threshold, which is a new uh, campus network automation framework. And uh, Daniel, uh, we have positioned it, sorry, Pika 8 is positioning it as a contrast to Cisco's very expensive DNA center. Pika 8 saying we get give you cheaper campus automation. Uh, Daniel wrote in to let us know that one reason the DNA center is priced the way it is is for its assurance or IBM and temp-based networking capabilities. That is, after any automated changes have been made, the systems then go back and check, one, did those changes actually happen? And two, are those changes meeting your policy, security, performance requirements? So that assurance piece is not in Pika 8 uh, at this time. And so he's saying that's why DNA center might be charging you more. Uh, Yeah, or charging less, as the case may be. I, I think that's very true. Now, the point here is that Um, Pika 8 is Ethernet switch only. They're not integrating wireless yet. So the scope of the solution is much more tighter and much more focused. And it's somewhat unclear to me what the value of the assurance is in a Cisco DNAC solution for lots of networks. That is, 
I agree that the assurance is highly desirable in customer networks where they're complex or of a certain size or your staff has very low skill levels and the assurance takes away the need to have that talent in-house in maybe if you're integrating lots and lots of different things. And perhaps also the Cisco, you know, the lived experience of Cisco is that quite often their equipment doesn't work the way you would expect. You go to configure something or make something in the network and it just sort of doesn't do what you want. And having that assurance that Cisco is, your your devices are acting as whatever is worthwhile. However, in some ways, DNAC actually reminds me, do you remember Cabletron back in the early 80s, late 90s? I do not. The Cabletron with their hubs and their stuff, and they had this Cabletron management system, and it was this excellent tool for configuring networks, and they used Armon to do network monitoring, mm. and you could tell what was happening, and you could monitor critical applications and so forth. And every customer I ever saw who bought Cabletron was enormously excited about the potential to configure the network and to monitor it and to know what was happening in the network. And then shortly thereafter, about 18 months later, the the sense of regret <laughs> and, <laughs> and sadness and despondency that set in. The Cabletron software required enormous amounts of effort to keep it up and running. It was often running on Arcane hardware with Arcane software underneath it. And that reminds me of DNAC in lots of ways. I haven't had too many happy stories from customers saying that their DNAC works well. Now, now to be fair, customers who are happy with their DNAC aren't speaking out, so you tend to hear the sad stories. Of so, course, yes. You know, the satisfied so customers tend not to say much, yes. So, yeah, so maybe it works. But I think the difference here is that closing the loop on configuration changes is, is in principle, a very good thing. You make a change, you measure the change. Is the cost policy working? Let's find out by monitoring. This is a very valuable thing. But I also think that there are also simpler solutions that just don't need the assurance. They don't need the cost. They don't need the overhead. There's lots of networks out there where all they want to do is use automation to configure VLANs or to do some IP routing or to sort of remove the path of plugging switches into the network. And I think that's where PIC8 is different. So I didn't mean to say that DNAC, but I do think that DNAC is overkill for a lot of people. And if all you want is a simple network that does something, and if Cisco pushes, this, I think I've seen this a few times over the years where vendors push these really complex, really powerful solutions to customers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then customers buy it and then find that the lived experience is not what they want. Now, that might be the vendor has oversold it, the reseller is not competent at using it, the customer is not competent at using it or can't extract the value from it. So I generally tend to believe that you should try and use the cheapest solution first and then wind up to the next level rather than going to the you know, it's a bit like buying a family sedan when you're when you're 18, expecting to have five kids and a, and a and a house to live to use it in, and that's not really when you're 18. You should be buying a fun car, right? Yeah. Yes, I got what you mean. Yes, does that make sense? It, uh, buy what you need. Don't buy on the belief that something in the future. To me, uh, DNA Center seems like if you're buying into this entirely automated campus networking scheme, then you need assurance because you want to ensure that an automated change doesn't result in some cascading state of affairs that totally throws your network out of whack or opens a hole where a hole shouldn't be or changes a policy or toggles over some other setting that shouldn't have been there. That's why you need the assurance. PK8 is more about... I just got 100 new switches. I need to get them deployed and configured. I can press a button, essentially, and get that done. Uh, that's where they're headed. So, yeah, it is, it is know your use cases, know what you're getting into with automation before you yeah. try to eat the whole enchilada. And there's a big hole in that bottom end of the market there. 
Yeah, that, that I think Pika Eight is smart to try to address. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think you'll see more companies operating in that space. You can do high value, high profit margin sales at the higher end, but it leaves a big hole at the in the mid and lower end where people might not want that. Yep. Well, thanks to Daniel and everybody else for following up. We love to get the fu uh, packetpushers.net slash fu if you have comments, corrections, or just want to say hello. Hmm. All right, we've got other news. Uh, Juniper has announced the MIST Wired Assurance subscription service for its EX asset access and aggregation switches. The service is built around the cloud-based analytics platform that MIST developed for its wireless LAN products, and Juniper acquired MIST in early 2019. So the essential idea is that the EX switches can send Junos telemetry into the MIST cloud, and then you get capabilities like, here we go with automation again, automated remediation. The service can ID wired and wireless problems and take automated actions like fix a VLAN config or correct a switch port misconfiguration. It can give you detailed troubleshooting suggestions if you don't want the full automated fix. And it can mm-hmm. do anomaly detection if switches deviate from baseline performance. And they've got this uh, thing they call the Marvis Virtual Assistant. It's a natural language query device where you can just type in something like, what's wrong with my switch or how are my uplinks <laughs> and you will get a response. <laughs> I want to know, can I type in why am I hungover and does it give, <laughs> does it give you a horrible answer? <laughs> hey, try Siri first. I don't know if Marvis is there yet. Um, I think uh, obviously you've covered most of the, the good points here. My reaction here is um, how pleasing it is to see that the time since Juniper acquired Mist, which feels to me like less than a year. Yeah, it was, uh, I think, March of 2019, March. yeah, so this year. And how quickly they've managed to take Mist and add it to their wireless and wired products. Yep. Yep. Um, sorry, obviously, Mist was wireless from the start, but how quickly now, I do remember speaking to Mist quite some time ago and them saying, well, we're going to start with Wi-Fi because that's where we think is the best place for us to start, but we have plans to do the whole campus. Just how quickly they've been able to add this to the campus environment suggests that the Mist technology could be a big winner for Juniper as time goes by. And again, like this is goes back to the follow-up we just talked about with DNAC. Uh-huh. This is um, heading down the path of intent because you're certainly getting anomaly detection, service level expectations, all the thing that Cisco classes up under the words of its intent is now part of the missed wide assurance functionality. Yes, although a Juniper is going to market with the notion of self-driving network, and they've been talking about this for a few years, uh, and so they're positioning this as another step toward that direction, that goal mm. of the self-driving network. Yeah, I think Juniper's using, instead of using intent as a branding, they're using self-driving as the branding, but they mean the same thing. I think they do too, but it also, mm. you know, <laughs> they don't have to get into arguments about what is IBN and are, am I actually mm. meeting the de- definitions, et cetera, et cetera. They're just like, it's self-driving. Yeah, I think self-driving works because um, self-driving to me implies a post-intent world. Intent today just says, I want a VLAN, and it configures a VLAN. Mm-hmm. What I actually want is something that automatically remediates or right. automatically configures. You know, it says, oh, this cost policy isn't working. Uh, hang on, I can reconfigure it to to meet the goals that you gave me. Right. So I think self-driving is more powerful, but execution remains the key here. Uh, watching these these things evolve and how they all bring it together. Keep in mind that um, Juniper does have some real power when they acquired AppNet AppView X, which was a quite a comprehensive telemetry and visibility analytics solution. Um, there's some, there's certainly a, a suite of products in there that looks like they're coming together quite quite well to me. Right, and they've also you know from day one built Junos to be. Uh, to 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 export telemetry, and so this is also, mm-hmm. I guess, tying into that vision as well uh, down the road, being able to leverage the way they designed the network OS from the mm-hmm. very beginning. I have the sense that um, Juniper's Junos is superior to Cisco operating systems. I think generally most people would put that sense out, and that would help them because 
uh, a great deal of effort around Cisco has been to fix iOS, mm-hmm. you know, that they're using it, whether they're in the data center or in the campus stuff. And even today, the list of bugs and uh, CVEs going out about it I still don't suggest that Cisco's quite got on top of its quality control problem, whereas Juno seems to have a much more consistent uh, strategy at this. So perhaps worth considering that as well. Yeah. Uh, well, links to Juniper's official release and a blog if you want more details. Uh, let's take a quick ad break to tell you about INE. They are the experts at making you an expert, and they are proud to renounce the release of a new monthly all-access pass subscription plan, which provides you the unlimited access to INE's entire content library of over 14,000 of the best IT and networking training videos available. For $99 a month, you can take advantage of a wide variety of tools and services devised and curated by top experts in the field. The all-access pass subscriber gets hundreds of hours of streaming content, free online classes, monthly webinars, and comprehensive workbooks covering networking, DevOps, security, data science, and general IT. INE's experts share their experience and knowledge working with Cisco, AWS, CompTIA, Google, Java, and other top technologies. You could also get a yearly subscription for $999. That includes two months of access for free. Subscribers can either, uh, you can cancel at any time. There's no extra fee. Start training for your dream career today. Visit INE.com slash Packetpushers to get started. That's INE.com slash Packetpushers. All right, back to the news. Docker, the startup that helped launch the container revolution, has sold off its enterprise platform business to Mirantis for an undisclosed amount. Yeah, hard to know how much, but it sort of feels like nothing. They just got rid of it, doesn't it? Uh, it's always hard when they don't say. <laughs> no, well, it sort of feels like um, it just wasn't making them money. Um, they tried to put a gloss on it and saying it's no longer core to our business or we can't see a way forward with it. And that doesn't sound like Mirantis paid anything for it. It was just like, here's a way to get rid of all that 300 headcount out of 400. And um, I had a chat with some some of the people who've left the company and they basically got nothing. So anybody oh, really? who had shares in Docker or, you know, were hoping to get a payout from a startup, once again, they got nothing. Mm. Um, and... I, I'm not sure quite what Docker's going to do with itself. So there's two things here. One is um, anything to do with Docker Enterprise, which is the support contracts and the maintenance arm of all that sort of stuff, that's moving over to a grant at Mirantis. Yeah. And, of course, Mirantis is famous for previously being a commercial distribution of OpenStack, so similar sort of model. And they do currently offer a Kubernetes service, so Docker in Kubernetes for the enterprise. Maybe there's a tie-up there. Docker itself says that we are going to respin into being a developer's tooling platform. Yes. So um, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know if you've got a sense for it. What do you think they can do with a tool platform for developers? I don't know. So apparently the, the two core items they're going to build this revised Docker around is Docker Desktop. It's a desktop developer environment. It includes a, a local instance of Kubernetes. So if you're obviously working in your desktop all day as a developer, they build this nice friendly environment for you with containers and Kates. Uh, and then there's Docker Hub, which is a cloud-based team collaboration platform. I, I don't know how widely these tools are used, but they feel like by focusing on developers and not worrying about selling to the enterprise, that's going to be their core, core audience going forward. Uh, and I guess a, a sort of vote of confidence from their existing investors, they also uh, announced a $35 million funding round to go uh, into the yeah. Docker developer arm and not the Docker mm. enterprise. So I guess I don't know if this is just uh, sort of the fallacy of sunk cost for these existing investors or they really think this is the strategy going forward that's going to work, but somebody's mm. going to throw some more money at it. 
Yeah, well, Docker, it says here on the website, Docker Enterprise seamlessly integrates developer tools into a continuous workflow from desktop to production. With Docker Enterprise, developers can deliver production-ready applications faster and more securely. And Docker Hub says Docker Hub provides a simple way for individual developers to start exploring Docker developer tools for common dev test scenarios. So I assume the Docker Enterprise is what's being sold off to Mirantis, and they're going to continue to sell and support it. The enterprise expects to have its hand held. It expects other people to do the work for them, and they can basically just you know, to a large extent, enterprises don't even want to drive the car. They actually want a chauffeur, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, they, and they're willing to pay for it, right? Instead of saying, well, I can, whereas there, there's another part there where Docker Hub is basically saying, here you go, buy a car. All you've got to do is drive it down the street. And, you know, we've often talked on the show about how much enterprises are willing to pay um, for the products to be sold to them. And maybe that just exhausted Docker's resources and was such a distraction from developing software that it just wanted to get away from that. Definitely part of Docker's issue is that when the whole container movement first emerged, Docker was sort of the core, just like, you know, uh, VMware was the core of the new virtualized application mm-hmm. environment. Docker was the core. But then Kubernetes came along and shunted Docker to sort of just a container inside this whole entire orchestration platform, which appeared to be more valuable to folks. And so uh, that took a lot of wind out of Docker sales and kind of left it split up between are we a developer company or are we trying to help enterprises build container-based applications? And they decided we want to be a developer-focused company and we'll sell that other business to Mirantis. Yeah, and managed to convince their current investors to come back for another funding round, which yes. is no mean feat. Thirty-five right? million is not. It's pretty unusual for venture capitalists to turn around and reinvest in an existing company, um, and then not say how much you sold off the old arm for. Which makes me think they got it, got rid of it for basically nothing. I'm thinking it was a song, yeah. Yeah, uh, if anything, you know, maybe there was some cash, but uh, Mirantis is taking on all of the asset. He's taking on three hundred headcount. And all of their holiday leaves and entitlements, presumably. So there wouldn't be much money in, <laughs> you know, presuming the enterprise is going to, you know, and Mirantis gets any future revenues from that business unit. One thing that strikes me here is Docker has, you know, sort of to- toyed with the open source model and then followed the tried and true path of once you've got an open source product that's successful, you sell it to the enterprise with maintenance. And that's you monetize from there and that feeds back into the open source. Yeah. And if Docker hasn't been able to make that work, Although 300 headcount would put line to the fact they haven't been able to make it work, but selling the company suggests that it's not a successful model, probably financially as well. Does that mean that selling services around open source isn't working, or that, or alternatively, the reverse view? Did Docker just mess it up? Did they overstaff the headcount? Did they overpitch, overpromise in the enterprise part, and were unable to deliver? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you can look at Red Hat and say, yes, you can make a a pretty good business out of selling services based around an open source product. So uh, the model is there. It may may have been execution. It may have been that container-based applications are very complicated and hard to do, and enterprises are still just trying to get their hands around it, so it didn't grow like they had anticipated. Yeah, well, just too many questions here. It's just like, you know, Red Hat's the only company that ever managed to monetize open source to date successfully or provably so at scale. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right, a little bit more SD-WAN news. Untangle, they make next-gen firewalls that target the SMB market. They have also announced a separate SD-WAN router. It's a hardware appliance for branch and remote offices. It's got your table stakes SD-WAN features, including application ID and the ability to direct traffic over the best-performing link. Uh, This SD-WAN router has an L3 firewall, but if you want next-gen firewall, you also need the separate Untangle appliance. They've got a couple of form factors, um, and it's going to ship in December. 
So on, uh, we've often talked in the show about the hypothesis that all firewalls will become SD-WAN devices, mm-hmm. and here's another ev- another evidence point. We've talked previously about uh, uh, Fortinet, of course, and Palo Alto t- turning their firewalls into SD-WAN devices. Um, and generally, I would say that it's it's already true that SD-WAN appliances are better firewalls than fire- most firewalls. And you know, at the end of the day, blocking traffic based on an a- on application is a pretty simple thing in 2019. Um, I think the challenge is going to be here is that are these firewall vendors just adding path dynamics? So if you're just adding some using your existing IPSEC and VPN functionality that you've already had in your firewall for remote access, and now what you're doing is just lighting up dual IPSEC tunnels or you know some HA around your IPSEC and doing some path dynamics to share flows down the down the available paths. If you're just doing the very basic IPSEC VPN at the edge, and Fortinet does something like this so far. They've got SDN at the edge where they load balance over IPSEC tunnels. And if that's Mm -hmm. all you want, that's a very fine solution. That's what you want. And you've got the firewalls and it's a good way of keeping customers in the fold so they don't leave. But um, I I think they're going to have to rapidly improve. So they're going to need an SDN controller in the cloud and you're going to have to have much more sophisticated, you're going to have to have threat intelligence and application visibility and analytics engines and stuff like that to stay in the market for very long before you'll get outclassed. And I think Untangle is taking the first step down that road. And how far down that road can it go before there's some sort of rationalization in the SD-WAN? Well, we'll see. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they decided to release a separate appliance instead of just adding SD-WAN features to their next-gen firewall. It seems like a slightly unusual step. Maybe it's a customer holding step, like we want. We know you want SD-WAN. We don't want you to go to Meraki or whoever else is targeting SMBs. So we'll roll out something on a box individual, uh, you know, in the early stages, and maybe we'll combine them down the line. But Having a separate appliance seems like a strange move given how we're seeing the SD-WAN market evolve so far. Yeah, it, it just makes sense. I think firewalls are pretty much over as a business and SD-WAN's going to replace it pretty quickly. That's not to say that it's dead or it's dead today. It's just evolutionary, you know, pick five years' time. I don't think we'll see firewall companies exist as such because the SD-WAN market will have largely displaced just firewalls you need and you an SD-WAN device at the branch can replace any sort of firewall out there you'll still need them in your campuses and at your data center edge and stuff like that but that will become a niche business not a core business well it'll become a feature inside a broader business and they'll have some fancy mm-hmm. new uh market category for it well you know we've been talking to Tufan obviously in the show through their um placements their advertising and sponsorships and that's making me realize that the days of having firewalls that run standalone are also uh, there are sdn configuration engines sitting on top of the firewalls now helping you do your work better mm-hmm. and again or also leading you down the sd-wan path because that's 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 on the convergence track yeah mm. All right, moving on. Uh, IP Infusion, they make networking software, particularly for the telecom industry. They've announced a new network operating system, the Danos Viata Edition. If that sounds familiar, we've been talking about Danos. It's an open source network OS originally developed by AT&T, and it's now a Linux Foundation project as well. It incorporates code from the Viata router, which AT&T acquired from Brocade. Uh, AT&T says it currently runs Danos Viata on white boxes in production, though it doesn't say at what scale. So, yes, so this is originally the old Viata code from before the Brocade acquisition, and then when Brocade got broken up, uh, when Broadcom acquired it, uh, the Viata business went over to AT&T because they'd made a substantial effort uh, to bond Viata into their open networking strategy. Mm-hmm. And so the developers stayed on, and now AT&T has open-sourced it and then done a deal with IP Infusion. Now, notably here, IP Infusion has been a network operating system vendor for over 20 years, I think. Right. 
very long. So they've been around for a long period of time. And quite often you would find the IP infusion code in other networking vendors' products from Juniper, Cisco, Extreme, you know, all those companies would quite often go to IP infusion to buy it. There's a range of other companies that you can buy them from, Metaswitch and, you know, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of companies, Six Wind, right. uh, you know. And a lot of the stuff that you come from your branded vendor is actually an assembly of products from other places. Uh, TLF, for example, uh, provides engine you know components for those engines as well. So it's a complicated market. So in this case, Danos is now getting a commercial support. So you can now go and use the Danos Viata, which was quite well regarded in its day, Viata was. And so if it's been it's up to date, and if you want a commercial support contract, <laughs> or if you like Danos Enterprise, uh, IP Infusion will give you that. Yeah, I sort of wonder uh, if uh, IP Infusion went down this road because AT&T said, we're going to be your primary customer. We, you know, mm. are anticipating rolling out X number of white boxes, so you'll have X number of licenses. Because mm. uh, I sort of wonder how many competitors of AT&T are going to want an AT&T-designed network OS. Not to say that there's, uh, you know, AT&T doing anything wrong with the code in there, mm. but it just seems like... Uh, I, is this a is AT and T going to be IP Infusion's biggest customer for this? I anticipate yes. Yes, and that makes sense. So the general belief would be is that service providers shouldn't be writing their own code. A right. company that's dedicated to that task, you know, the primary purpose of a of a telco is to assemble the pieces. Yes. Um, if yeah, you they like. can let IP Infusion worry about all the code integration, worry about patches, worry about upgrades, code mm -hmm. maintenance, uh, while they just get on with shipping out the white boxes. Yeah, and it also gives them the flexibility, you know, if they were developing this code in-house, they'd have to use it, and there might be areas inside of their network where it makes no sense to use this white box code where they want to have, you know, a Juniper router here or a Cisco router there, but the pressure would be on to use the in-house developed one. Yeah. And they want to be able to use the best of breed. So I think this makes sense. And generally, I would find it hard to believe that AT&T could sustain a team of developers for very long before the internal process or the internal corporation and corporation politics would kill it off or, or starve it for attention or something. Right. If they're serious about going forward with it, I do think it makes sense to ship it out to a commercial provider. Mm. Uh, and of course, now IP Fusion could go out there and sell it yeah. alongside of its own operating system, which people have been buying and using. Absolutely, yeah. And if you still want the open source version, it's there with the Linux Foundation. So I think AT&T is essentially trying to have its cake and eat it by maybe attracting more open source development to sort of advance the, the project in ways that then could be folded into the commercial version. It'd be very interesting to see if some of the other projects like ONAP and Cord and um, or the OpenRAN pick this up and mm -hmm. run with it in their standard build-out. So if you can have a, a software-based router, and increasingly the router functionality, you know, as we talk about in SD-WAN, becomes less relevant at the edge, but remains relevant in the core, if that makes sense. Yes. And, and if, or as part of things like open RANs, um, open, open access, open radio access network, talk more about that down the bottom of the show. Um, you know, you need just software routing functions in places. You don't need a hardware one. And if everything's in a virtual, in a VM or a container, then maybe this is sufficient. Yeah. So if those other projects pick it up because it's an open source router, then maybe they'll go with it. And a hint about AT&T's plans. I found a press release from back in 2018 where AT&T said it planned to roll out 60,000 white box routers in cell towers over the next few years and that those white boxes would run DNOS, which was the initial version of Danos and Viata. So they have been thinking yeah. about this for a while. Yeah, and so they're running some sort of open source radio access network. <laughs> you know, the network that sits just back from the radios, I think, is what they're going to be doing here. And the good part about cell towers is once you've done it 10 times, 
doing it a thousand times isn't that much right. harder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You've got scaling problems, but you haven't got this, you know, those networks are often quite consistent. It's a bit like managing a branch network. The difference between a branch network with 50 sites and 500 sites isn't that much. Once you've got a small, medium, large branch plat strategy in place, it doesn't matter too many. You template it out and just kind of roll and go, yeah. Yeah, that's a gross simplification, but yes, right? <laughs> it's not a, you know, as you increase branches, the cost of a, uh, the technology cost of a branch network does not increase linearly. Right. It, yeah, it increases at a much slower pace because it doesn't require that extra money. All right, we'll keep an eye on that, but another quick break to tell you about ExtraHop. They are the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. IT and network ops teams are responsible for managing the applications and infrastructure that modern enterprises depend on, but SDN, cloud, and shadow IT create blind spots, especially when it comes to applications that you can't instrument. ExtraHop is the leader in network analytics, helping teams like yours rise above the noise of tool sprawl and enterprise complexity. They offer complete visibility with machine learning to help you make quick, confident decisions about your IT environment. You can explore the ExtraHop performance platform for yourself. That's at extrahop.com slash packetpushers. All right, back to the news. Cisco Systems released an anemic earnings report for Q1 of its fiscal year. That plus a week forecast for the second quarter drove the stock price down more than 5% in the next day's trading. Yeah, mixed messages here. Revenues are still $13.2 billion, so it's not exactly like Cisco's going broke or going out no. of business. That's not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, they're, they're ba- blaming the macroeconomic environment, is that what I read, which is saying that I believe the political situation and the trade tensions with the U.S. is certainly starting to slow down the growth. Um, Asia Pacific sales was continues to fall away. Uh, in the deep in the details, I found that five um, percent decline in uh, Asia Pacific, Japan uh, area, which is, includes China. Yeah, <laughs> uh, China, Japan. Uh, yeah, Asia. Uh, yes, uh, revenues are down eight uh, percent in that region year over yeah. year. So that's a big drop. Mm-hmm. But also fell in Americas by three percent, Namia in three uh, percent. In particular, the enterprise business unit shrank by five percent, and service provided by thirteen percent. The bright highlight was public sector of six percent. They must have sold an awful lot of that to get two percent growth mm. <laughs> in in the bottom line, because they still managed to get thirteen point two billion up two percent. Uh, the weakness in share price, so the share price has fallen seven percent. Uh, it's wandered around. It fell immediately by four to five percent. Continued to fall down to seven percent. Popped back up a little bit since as people come back into the market to buy the stock because they're seeing it as cheap. Uh, the general consensus is that Cisco's um, charting forward. But uh, when I read the report from George Notter over at Jefferies Securities, he said that he expect they'll prefer, preserve the earnings per share power as margins expand and cost cuts get implemented. Uh, the below market evaluations and the dividend yield should also help to protect the downside in the stock. And further business transformation, digitization that driving the business isn't going away even in a software. So what he's saying is, one, they'll continue to have good earnings per share because they're increasing their profit margins, which trotted me off to the profits, revenue and gross total margin. Um, Cisco actually managed to sell less but charge more for it. And so, sorry, they continue to grow, sell less, so the market shrank, but they managed to sell it for more yes. and make more profit overall. So the profit margin shifted from uh, year over year from 64.2% to 65.9%. That's a hell of a whack. That's a good trick. That's a very good trick. (laughs) (laughs) While uh, overall growing 2%. So even though they're shrinking in the infrastructure platforms, so the overall infrastructure platforms, you've got to slice and dice these numbers as you go. Overall infrastructure platforms was down 1%. So that is UCS, routing, you know, all that sort of business. Switching that whole business, yeah. And Cisco lists out its results. It's very interesting to look at Cisco's results. It talks about infrastructure platforms, application security, 
and then services. And so anything that's a router, whether it's service provider or enterprise or whatever, just gets lumped as infrastructure platforms. And what Cisco's trying to say there is our future is in applications, security, and services. Yeah, so, and to that, security revenue was up 22%, so a nice bright spot. Yes, uh, but off a very low base. They only do $800 million compared to other security companies in the space. Cisco is a tiny player. But services revenue is up 4%. Maybe one time in the future we'll dig into what that services revenue is made of. Um, and also they're touting their subscription revenue, so uh, which the market very much likes. So it doesn't matter if you don't like subscriptions and subscriptions licensing, you're going to get more of it. Yeah, and I should note that it's not just Cisco who's feeling the macroeconomic picture when we talked about Juniper and Arista results over the mm -hmm. past few shows. Juniper said in its last quarterly report, they also slighted slowdowns in service providers and enterprise, and Arista warned of a more difficult environment for its own uh, forthcoming quarter, although that they're saying is just due to a single cloud titan. Yeah, I should point out too, just one last point, profit margins have increased from 64.2% to 65.9% in the US market. That's an astonishing increase. Uh, so logically, I would conclude that Cisco's actually, you know, the, the politics is seeing US companies turn to buying from Cisco or to buying from US companies. Mm -hmm. And Cisco's taken advantage of that in the local market by raising its price. That's a patriotic price increase. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. I, would, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that would be an accurate summary. Right. Uh, making use of the situation, I think, would be the thing. You know? Yes, absolutely. Yep. A good socialist move by restricting competition in your country gets a socialist response. <laughs> right. All right, we've got links if you want to dig into Cisco's results. Let's move on. Uh, the European telco Vodafone reportedly plans to issue requests for quotes to redesign its infrastructure based on open RAN standards. The bid would reportedly cover more than 100,000 sites across Europe. Uh, what's perhaps most surprising about this is two months ago they announced a pilot and now they're actually letting a tender to replace uh, almost all its sites using Open RAM. So yeah. this is the idea that white box hardware with generic software and potentially as much open source software as possible in those Open RANs, and they're looking for companies who will offer a solution around that and take the support contract. Vodafone doesn't want to develop it, but they do want openness in their radio access network. Vodafone, of course, spends a large majority of Europe. They have, you know, uh, uh, own a range of telcos right through many countries in Europe. So it would automatically make this one of the biggest things and it would be very disruptive to the infrastructure market to suddenly see all of the proprietary solutions from Nokia and Ericsson, particularly and Huawei, not being relevant in a 5G context. Mm -hmm. um, so it would be interesting to see how much money they can cut out. And they've been quite blatant about it. They just want to spend less <laughs> on this. Yeah, so in digging into this a little bit, it does sound like they have talked to some incumbents, and so those incumbents will be part of this tender, this uh, this bid. Um, mm. But it, it's also compelling those incumbents to say, get on board with this open RAN project because we're not going to buy, you know, uh, a traditional sort of uh, closed, non-aggregated solution or aggregated mm -hmm. solution. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Vodafone will use it, and it also doesn't mean that it will work. So <laughs> we've right. seen plenty of open source projects like this founder, like, you know, we were talking about Viata five or six years ago and how excited we were that an open routing strategy was going forward and, you know, fast forward to today, we still don't really have it, but there are more and more, there's slow build in momentum around this. It's definitely a way for Vodafone and other companies to go to the equipment vendors and say, we're done paying these prices for uh, your closed proprietary solutions. We want to move more open. We're heading down this way. Come with us, uh, you know, help us work with us on this. Otherwise, we'll find another way. It's, it's essentially, it gives them a lash that they can use to, to drive prices down. 
<laughs> if nothing else, it will be able to do that. And it will also give a fillip to mid-sized vendors who would be looking at Open RAN mm-hmm. to uh, perhaps look at those. I actually think Open RAN would be more successful at smaller and mid-sized organizations who can um, – but those organizations often don't feel that they have the competency to step up to this. Uh, and they would rather outsource the risk by buying branded, buying from branded vendors. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You have to have good uh, operations internally, but also be able to trust the infrastructure partner you're working with to make sure it's all going to work together. Not. It's not operations. It's good management, and that's hard to find. I guess part of it is though when you're integrating all of these components, you have to make sure they're working together. Uh, you know, once you ship the tin, because uh, that's going to cause problems otherwise. So that's where you want that. I guess that's why their uh, Vodafone isn't cutting out the incumbents entirely because they sort of have these relationships with them and trust that if they ship them something, it should generally work. Yeah. Yep. All right. Our last story: uh, management of the .org domain .org is being sold off to a private equity firm. The Public Internet Registry, which was part of the Internet Society organization, was set up in general to provide low-cost domain services to nonprofits, groups, and clubs. It's now going to be run by a for-profit private equity firm called Ethos Capital. Hmm. There's so much wrong with this. We we <laughs> talked a few weeks ago about. Um, how they were taking the price caps off the .org domain names. Right. ICANN said it was not going to restrict price caps. That's right. Whereas previously .org had basically been capped at whatever it cost to do them, it would handle them. And only non-profit organizations can apply for a .org domain name. And now they've handed it off to a private equity firm for profit. It's just, there seems to be a massive clash of things here, and the the reaction across the blogosphere has been substantial. And people sitting on both sides... It's hard to see. I, I think I might try and reach out to the Internet Society and see if we can get um, the CEO of the organization to come on and explain about it. I'll do my best and we'll try. Mm. Um, but this seems like a massive conflict of interest to give a non-profit piece of business to a for-profit company, um, and that always works out well. Look at jails in the UK. Or, or the United States. No, the United States. It's like uh, not you know, just these things just don't tend to work out so well. Um, the, the alignment of the business needs to be in line with the intentions of what the organization is trying to achieve. So I'm uh, just struggling. Yeah. It's also weird that it went to Ethos. This is, I tried to do some digging around Ethos Capital. This is a, pretty much a brand new uh, private equity firm. It's got two people on it. Uh, not a lot of background about them other than the, other than the founder went to Harvard Business School. Uh, doesn't seem like they have anything else in their portfolio. There's not a lot of information on their website. There's not a lot of information about the organization on the web. So it, it just, just seems like a bad idea all around. Yeah, it seems, like anybody it feels can... like a cash grab. <laughs> sure does. It just feels everything about this feels vaguely, vaguely wrong. And 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 just because you've got ethos in your title doesn't make you <laughs> that makes me even more suspicious. <laughs> Honestly, you know. I'd rather have a private equity firm just be like, yeah, we're, we're pirates. Yes. I don't know, just uh, hard to put a finger on, um, and I don't want to go on about this too much because the .org domain is not necessarily entirely relevant uh, <laughs> to to an enterprise IT audience unless you actually have a, a .org domain name for whatever reason, but it does just feel very, very, very strange. It, it feels like it violates the original intent of the internet and also just the way .org was set up. But yeah, we'll keep an eye on this and, and see how it shakes out. Uh, but uh, it's troubling. Troubling. All right. Well, that wraps up the news portion. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to get details on traffic decryption in our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with ExtraHop. That's coming right up.
You're listening to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute or so podcast that takes a quick but comprehensive look at essential technologies. Today's topic is traffic decryption, particularly how and why to do it for security and operations purposes. Our sponsor is ExtraHop, and our guest is Tom Stitt. He is Senior Director of Product Marketing and Security at ExtraHop. Tom, welcome to the podcast. So the IT industry and standards bodies have been working very hard over the past several decades to develop strong, reliable encryption. Why do we want to strip that away and expose those packet payloads? Well, it really comes down to just gaining basic visibility. But even deeper than that, as all security and networking geeks like myself understand, is that the the real truth or the fundamental truth is at the packet layer. So, and mm-hmm. metadata matters. So, when it comes to gaining visibility to into east west traffic within the network, you can gain a little bit of visibility by looking at the encrypted traffic and looking at the, the packets. But to really understand and get a deeper level of both detection and analytics, you really have to decrypt that traffic to gain that visibility. It's getting a little confusing these days because we're seeing sort of a a rise in these flow analyzers, which give us some visibility. And we're seeing some companies get into fingerprinting where they're looking at the packet patterns and they're able to derive some information. So there's a bunch of halfway points in this, but it is also the underlying truth is that you've got to have the packets and you've got to see the unencrypted packets to be able to have absolute source of truth, right? Well, I like the way you described that, is that there's a range of being able to look at the packets or look at the, the network traffic to be able to, to gain insights or to be able to gather uh, metadata to be able to do some analytics and machine learning and look at trending over time. But to really, as you move from basically just basic information to really to the actual packet itself, there are certain types of attacks that you just have to have visibility into the packet to really understand what's going on and be able to... Hmm reassemble that communication stream so the full connection life cycle of that of that connection to really what's going on and to understand the layer seven type of yeah. communication you've got and to see the layer seven transaction of, yes exactly. but that's and not easy right that's that's not simple that's that can be hard and risky because capturing every single packet is non-trivial and then analyzing it is much less even non-trivial so it does get difficult when when that approach is being used from like a traditional perspective, like either at a gateway where they're um, decrypting the traffic for analysis, uh, almost being a, a man in the middle type of use case. There are other applications where you can be out of band and mm. it becomes less complicated and much easier to do the decryption at line speed without impacting either the performance of the network, uh, yeah. interjecting another point of risk within the overall process uh, and, mm. and being able to provide that that broader visibility. Okay, so what we're talking about essentially is a product from ExtraHop called RevealX. It does network detection and response, and obviously it needs to be looking at packets to, to do what it's going to do. So is that how RevealX functions? Is it a man-in-the-middle device? It is not. So we are completely out of band, and we either do a span port or traffic mirroring. We get access to the network traffic, and out of band, we decrypt that traffic, do our analysis. So we never are a man-in-the-middle, a bump in the wire, so we don't interject either latency or any additional security risk to that traffic. But the challenge here is that once you're capturing those packets out of band, you're no longer in the stream. So how do you then decrypt the encrypted traffic, especially in the era of TLS 1.3, where you've got all of the modern crypto features You know that basically mean it's impossible? The old days, you used to be able to just say, here's my private key once. Well, now they have rotating private keys. So the way we've we've solved that challenge is what we call uh, secret sharing, or we use a secret sharing agent that is actually on the server or the servers that 
are communicating and are specific to the traffic that we want to decrypt. Mm -hmm. And so what that allows us to do is, is for each of those session keys for each of those connections. So the way we do it is, is pretty simple is we use a, a secret sharing agent that is on the server or the servers that we want to be able to decrypt that traffic. And we have a PFS channel back to our appliance or our appliance that's doing the decrypting on the box. And so that allows us to have those uh, secrets for each of those sessions so that we're able to decrypt that traffic on the box and that traffic is always contained. That decrypted traffic is never shared within the, the organization. Okay, so let me read that back to you. In TLS 1.3, there's a, a feature called Perfect Forward Secrecy where, as Greg mentioned, it's creating an individual key for every session. So you're saying you've got an agent on the server that can get those individual session keys and then send it to the RevealX box so that as traffic is flowing in off a, a span or a mirror port, you can then decrypt those sessions. Exactly. And we are actually hmm. creating a Perfect Forward session for each of those keys. So it's a clever way of being able to share those secrets with, yeah. It's almost as if it's a secret within a secret. Yeah, and because you're capturing the packets and then you get the key later, they don't have to be immediately happening because you can just decrypt them later on. And then once it's decrypted, you throw the keys away. So you're not even giving up, like you're not, it's not a security breach to do this because you've got permission. He who owns a private key is the owner of the security. So it's your choice, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So there's not a moral issue here is what I'm is I'm just going to tangentially run through that one. This is on the assumption that you own the private key, then you're the owner of the system and therefore sharing the private key is perfectly legitimate and normal. So I guess the question here is how does that out-of-band decryption work? Is it straightforward? I mean, I just can't imagine what that looks like in the cloud. Yeah, so in the cloud, it's fairly similar. And instead of doing a band port or a tap, we're actually relying on the cloud service provider. So an AWS is the first cloud service provider to provide that traffic mirroring or what they call VPC traffic mirroring. Mm -hmm. mm. And so in that sense, we're, once again, we are out of band. So we're getting a mirror of the traffic from AWS, that encrypted traffic. And once again, having that secret sharing agent on the server gives us the keys that we need to be able to, to decrypt that traffic at line mm. speeds. Now, that's important. And I think the interesting part here is that you've, because VPCs, AWS is VPCs, and I know the other cloud providers are going to follow suit, you can now basically capture packets inside of the public clouds and feed them into your services that are public cloud-based. So there's extra hop on AWS that you can now get all of the extra hop features in AWS. Exactly. So it works very similarly as it would on, in an on-prem environment, but now everything is abstracted into software. The real power there is in some of the response actions. You know, once we're able to decrypt that traffic, as as we talked about earlier, there's a list of just different types of attacks from SQL injection, brute force, database logons that you really need that layer seven and be able to see both sides of the communication. Now the the response actions are you can directly respond into that cloud service provider fabric to either isolate that service or maybe even isolate that particular server. It's very interesting because we've see, recently seen attacks on misconfigured AWS settings. So where people have you know gone through the identity manager and as they've instantiated stuff, they've attached permissions but got the permissions wrong. In this case, you are actually saying because you can see the packets, you can see abuse of the service and then react to that to say, oh, hang on, the permission, something's gone wrong in the permissions. This isn't normal. And then there's something that's got to be tracked down. Exactly. And the approach that we take is in unique and we really call it an analytics first approach. So we've talked a lot about packets and decrypting traffic. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of analytics and a lot of insight that you can gain. And there's really a, a range. 
ultimately what we're talking about is to really do full spectrum detection, you need to be able to decrypt the packets. But there's a lot you can do before that. And so if I'm interfacing with that information, the first part, or what are the detections that I'm seeing, whether spikes in traffic or anomalous traffic, Mm -hmm. all the way down to where the specific detections that I have. And so you move from that higher level information and you move into the next level, which is validating, gaining insights and investigating. And the last thing that you gain as you're doing your investigation is what's the source of truth? So what are those packets? So there's a lot of information to be gleaned before you ever even actually get to the packet. But you've also got forensic data. So if you actually need to play this back, subject to your capture limits, um, you can also use this to play back what happened. So if you need to forensically ascertain, you know, was data extracted and prove it perhaps in a court of law, this is a reference for that. Exactly. Okay. So can you give me a sense of uh, how the process, so it sounds like you're doing real-time analytics as the packets come into the appliance, you're decrypting, you're doing an analysis. What happens then to that payload? Does it sit on the box unencrypted? So once we've done the full stream reassembly, so we've got both sides of the communication, we gathered the the metadata that we use for some of our machine learning analytics. A customer has the option to store those packets, not the, to re-encrypt and, and store those packets on a separate appliance or box so that those, if they want to do the investigation or analysis later, they then have access to those packets. But we no longer need those access to those packets. We've already gathered the metadata. We've already done the full stream reassembly. So we've got the records of the communication streams. We've done our detection work. So we don't continue to store those. And, and that's completely configurable as well. So customers can choose which protocols or which packets they want to keep, which ones they want to analyze, I think, which is critically important as it relates to regulatory, you know, HIPAA, different regulations that determine what we decrypt and what we can't. So there's a lot of configurability as it relates to both compliance and the types of data that I want to store. So you're saying if traffic's coming onto the analytics appliance, I can set up rules to say, if this looks like it's HIPAA or PCI traffic, do not decrypt. Exactly. And so part of that is for ExtraHop and RevealX, we have a very strong network analytics background. So we have a, a broad set of protocols that we support. And so just that uh, protocol identification, and then also being able to set rules and triggers on which ones I want to decrypt on. What are, uh, if I see a particular type of traffic, I can decrypt that traffic uh, and let everything else. And the beauty there is that even though we may not be decrypting, we're only decrypting some types of traffic, we're analyzing all that traffic, at least from the, the packet header mm. perspective, gaining some of that metadata. So you can still use metadata analysis even if you're not un- unlocking the whole thing. Exactly. As we talked about earlier, you know, other flow analysis, you know, that's where they stop uh, the ability to gather some of that metadata. And they're making pretty broad inferences as it relates to security. And some of the the unintended consequences with that is can be a high rate of false positives. So that's where we can do both the initial level of analytics, then also decrypt and get down to that layer seven analytics. And just to, to clarify on that uh, sensitive traffic issue, am I do I have to rely on like the packet broker or whatever I'm getting the traffic mirrored from to have some smarts to say, to tag some kind of traffic and say, don't decrypt this, or is that all done by the extra hop appliance? Uh, everything is done by extra hop. All we need is to either with the packet broker or through a span port or Traffic mirroring is to get access to the packets. We do the decryption on box at line speeds, do the full state reassembly. And then once we've gathered our metadata and the the records that we need for 
analysis, unless the customer wants to store those packets, we no longer uh, hold on to those packets. Okay, so it's just to the packet broker or to the, the port. Just give me everything and we'll figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> okay, that simplifies things, I guess. <laughs> it does. It makes it a lot. And we're doing it at line speeds too. So that's another yes. thing, which is yeah. there's there's no impact to performance. Everything is out of bound and it's off. Everything's out of, out of band. Speed. But the yeah. other thing about ExtraHop is that you've got these 100 gig packet brokers. So you can actually capture data at 100 gig rates and then deliver the analysis up. We've talked about that in other shows that we've done with you over the last year or so about just exactly. how fast that stuff goes. So the, one of the interesting things is a lot of people will say, oh, well, I wonder how far that scales. And one of the big things about ExtraHop is this is what they do. They don't do anything else. If you're in a data center and it's a data center that you run, you can actually do this on 100 gig interfaces and capture at line rates. Keep in mind that at 100 gig, you're talking nine nanoseconds between packets as they come off the 100 gig. So you really need to have a sound architecture. This isn't sampled. This is full line rate captures if you want it. Right. And full state reassembly at speed. So as you mentioned, there's other podcasts where we go into the specific architectures of it, but that's one of the strengths of having that network analytics background, being able to pull the the Mm. packets off the wire, reassemble into that, that structured wire data at line speed. Yeah. And in terms of positioning, uh, it, it sounds like you're positioning this for internal east-west traffic as opposed to out in a DMZ looking at inbound or outbound traffic. Is that correct? Exactly. It's really the main blind spot that most organizations and security teams are worried about, which is as more and more of my internal traffic between my clients and servers and what's going on in my environment and the different components of my applications are going dark, how do I have visibility into what's going on? So that's the primary use case. And again, that goes back to, yes, and we can get access to the perfect forward secret C keys as well. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, well, that about wraps it up for time. But thank you, Tom, for this really interesting conversation about encryption and more importantly, decryption. Uh, if folks are interested in getting more information, where would you send them? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. The first thing I would focus is point people towards our demo. It's a live demo of real product, and that can be found at extrahop.com slash demo. And the second is a 30-day free trial of our cloud reveal X. And that can be found at extrahop.com slash free trial. All right. Thank you. Uh, and for more information, there's also extrahop.com slash packet pushers. Why not hit all three? Thanks for listening. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.